0: Okay, uh, podcast listeners, here's the thing. This is um, Sean Ollie, Curious City editor here. And uh, Jennifer, are you there? Yes, it's it's me, Jennifer Brendel. Uh, I produce Curious City. Okay, listeners, here's the thing. There's a secret going around WBEZ, and it goes like this. We ended season two of podcasts for Curious City a little while back. But our supervisor, Tim Akamoff, is gone today, and maybe he won't notice then we're adding yet another episode. Exactly. So j- just keep this under wraps. So here's the thing. This is not exactly a season two sequel. It's more like a Curious City podcast season three prequel, if you will. Yeah, it's it's a history special of all the great history questions you guys have sent in this past year, and uh, it's an hour, so it's like it's like a big one. And, and, and that's that's about all we gotta say. Hope you enjoyed. If you do, head to WBEC.org slash for more. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> 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 Don't tell Tim.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer
2: Brandel, and I created Curious City. It's a news-gathering experiment where the public decides what stories WBEZ should do. You submit questions about Chicago, the region, and its people, and WBEZ reporters and producers answer them.
3: And I'm Sean Ali. I edit whatever we do and find angles to stories you just can't find on Google. Basically, Jennifer and I help people like you tell people like us, journalists, what to do with our time.
2: And that's been a wild ride. We've answered all kinds of questions, sometimes fun stuff.
3: But also enterprising, serious investigations.
2: One thing we've learned loud and clear is that curiosity often looks backward to the past, to history.
3: And that's what we're going to take on for the next hour. Chicago history through the lens of Chicago's own curiosity. Gender. Donuts. Missiles. And insanity. All that just ahead on this Curious City special. I'm Alex Keith with these WBEZ news headlines.
4: Now, there's 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 really nothing, uh, there's nothing going on.
3: Back to you. I'm Sean Ali, editor of Curious City. Judging by questions we get on our Curious City website, people see a lot of gaps in Chicago history.
2: And I'm Jennifer Brandel, senior producer for Curious City. People like you have asked questions about stories that a historian might have missed, like how Dunkin' Donuts took over Chicago's donut market and whether World War II nuclear experiments left one of our major universities radioactive.
3: So let's call this Chicago area history Curious City style. And people like you told us what chapters are important. So how are we going to do this? Well, people who submit curiosity questions are not necessarily doing it in any particular order. So let's slap a little grade school clarity on this and go back into Chicago history and then go forward from there.
2: Sounds good. If you're not a Chicago history buff, but you listen to Chicago area traffic reports, this name will be familiar. Jane Addams.
5: On the Jane Addams Tollway past U.S. 20, westbound Jane Addams Tollway, we do still have a crash there. On our tollways, I-90, the Jane Addams Tollway.
2: Yes, a portion of Interstate 90 is named after one of the most remarkable Chicagoans to date. Jane Addams began making her mark on Chicago, the country, and the world at the close of the 1800s. In 1889, she co-founded Chicago's Hull House. It was a settlement house that provided social and educational opportunities for immigrants, the poor, minorities, women, children, you name it. Jane Addams had a dynamic career. She was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, an author, a poet, even a garbage inspector. And she was given the label, the mother of modern social work. But Curious City got a question about another kind of label for Jane Adams, one relating to her private life. Curious citizen Adam Peterson asked,
6: Could Jane Addams be considered a lesbian with the current use of that terminology?
2: I did not find an easy answer to this question. Instead, I got deep answers from people who've thought hard about Jane Addams' life and what the word lesbian means. You'll hear from many of them, but I'll start with the one person who I never got a straight answer from, Jane Adams herself. Mm. There's no question that Jane Addams was in a long-term, serious relationship with a woman named Mary Rosé Smith. Mary was a wealthy Chicagoan who supported Whole House and its social programs. Some might say, a sugar mama. Together, Jane and Mary traveled the world, owned a vacation home, and at one point considered adopting a child. They also wrote decades' worth of letters to one another. But Jane Addams had many of them destroyed.
7: The letters burned.
2: This is John D'Amelio. He's a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and has written extensively on gay history and
7: culture. I wish we had those letters. Oh my God, I just, it it kills me.
2: I ask him, so did Jane Adams have the letters burned because they contained anything explicitly sexual?
7: There's no way. You know, this is not the world of Hugh Hefner and Playboy and (laughs) all of this other stuff. So that's not what they were writing about. But what they were probably writing about is just the open expression of how much the other person meant.
2: These letters didn't survive, but a few poems did.
7: Okay, so this is called Undated Poem, and it's from Jane Addams to Mary
2: Rose Smith. Here's a poem read by Heather Radke, the exhibition coordinator at the Jane Addams Whole House Museum. The Mine and Thine of Wedded Folk is often quite confusing and sometimes when they use the hours it sounds almost amusing but you and i may well defy both married folk and single to do as well as we have done the mine and thine to mingle so jane and mary had their own kind of marriage d'amelio says he would use this term for it a boston marriage In Jane's Victorian era, many middle-class, college-educated women were in committed relationships with other college-educated women. Again, John
7: D'Amelio. And so Boston marriage becomes a very neutral, acceptable way of describing something that, if described in other terms, might be scandalous.
2: But where does he come down on the lesbian question? instead of calling Jane and Mary lesbians.
7: I'm gonna call them women loving women. These women loving women, their private lives are very important to understanding their public roles.
2: And what a public role Jane Adams had. She had her hands in so much, juvenile justice, education, labor reform. Demilio says if you study history, you'll find other trailblazing women of her time had female companions too.
7: That probably made a big difference And they're having the strength and the capacity and the emotional wherewithal to be out there in public.
2: I asked another historian with a different take on what to call Jane Addams.
5: She's queer. Jane Addams is queer in the way that we use that term today.
2: This is Jennifer Breyer. She's an associate professor of gender and women's studies in history at UIC.
5: She did not conform to gender and sexual norms of the time. I feel more comfortable calling Jane Addams queer than I do calling her a lesbian.
2: But why not call Jane Addams a lesbian? Breyer says it would be a little lazy. Using the word lesbian might lead us to conclude that we know something meaningful about her life or what relationships were like 100 years ago. But she had another problem with the L word.
5: She wouldn't have defined herself as a lesbian. It wasn't a phrase that had meaning to her. And I think that that matters.
8: Of course she was. (laughs) I mean, that's, I think... There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that, you know, she would be considered a lesbian. And so for me, it's unambiguous.
2: Lisa Yoon Lee is a former director of the Jane Addams Whole House Museum. While Lee is okay with calling Jane Addams a lesbian, she tells the story of how she and the museum had to grapple with that label. So back in the mid-2000s, Lee noticed this one painting of a brunette and a yellow ruffly dress in the staff offices. But as
8: soon as I started asking, you know, who is that person in the painting, there were sort of like hushed tones and like confusion. And people said, well, some people say that it's Jane Adams's partner. Other people says it's her biggest, you know, business supporter. Other people said, well, of course, it's her lesbian lover. <laughs> and I realized that there was...
2: This was a painting of Mary Rosé Smith. The Woman in Jane Addams Letters. The more Lee learned about Mary, the more she wanted the painting on public display. But the museum had to decide what label should they use to talk about Jane and Mary's relationship.
8: We created a sort of alternative labeling project where we asked people to help us identify who this painting was and how did people want her to be identified.
2: Ultimately, the museum, with the public's help, decided to identify Mary as Jane's closest companion, the hope was this label and the historical context would inspire curiosity, not conclusions. Say
8: What? Like, what do you mean by that? Why is that important? And I want to know more, you know, and so all of these. Uh,
2: labels. Since bringing Mary into the museum, they've decided that even more private history should be made available to the public. So they're starting something new. Welcome to the Jane Addams Hull House Museum. We will be giving a gender and sexuality tour where we will be exploring the history of Jane Addams and Hull House around gender and sexuality. This tour, it explores Jane and other women at Hull House who didn't follow gender norms. But the tour is also a statement that it's better to talk about Jane Addams' sexuality than to avoid it.
5: Again, we're gonna continue this further, but let's head over to the childhood exhibit.
2: Lena Reynolds has been giving general museum tours for a while. And she says she usually brings up Jane and Mary's relationship. But one day...
5: We had a group once that had loads of kids and they didn't have nearly enough time. They had like 15, 20 minutes or something. So
2: Reynolds clipped the tour and instead focused on Jane Addams' Nobel Peace Prize and her thick FBI file. So
5: I walk out and then one of the parents comes up to me and was like, you know, I really wish that you had gone into her story with Mary Rosé Smith because there are several kids in this class who have same-sex parents and they really needed that moment of inspiration.
2: Reynolds called the group back and told the story of Jane and Mary. She says that moment was a good reminder of how Jane's life affects people today regardless of whether we use the word lesbian or not
5: she's part of this bigger movement even if it was in a time before the movement existed you know whether or not we you know want to put that word on it, it that she was fighting for equality and acceptance and human rights is undeniable and that she valued love is also undeniable
3: I edited you so I know that you did a lot more work than this radio story of all the things you put together what should people be checking out
2: well we've got an article online with way more detail about this story and that is if you can't get enough of Victorian sexuality and commentary about it and if you just want to see too that painting of Mary in the yellow roughly dress it's there that's over at wbez.org curious city
3: So this next story isn't about the private life of a famous Chicagoan. It's about people who are mostly forgotten because they lived and maybe died out of sight at the Dunning Asylum for the Insane. Dunning opened as a poor farm in 1854 in what became the northwest side of Chicago. It became an asylum, and the atrocious conditions there made headlines in the 1890s. Here's the question about it from Michael Dotson.
6: My
9: question is, what is the history of Dunning, the insane asylum, and the people who have died here and the people who are buried And unknown.
3: Mike's question is pretty broad, so we narrowed it down to who exactly ended up at Dunning. We had freelance reporter Robert Lorzel dig into archives and memories to find out.
9: Chicagoans were scared of Dunning. Just uttering the word aloud could give people the chills.
1: Whenever someone would act a little nutsy, any of the kids would say, oh, got to send them to Dunning. If
4: you and your brothers and sisters don't behave, we'll send you to Dunning. And that used to scare kids because they knew that it was a mental institution.
9: That's Ross Goodrich and Stephen Hill. As kids, they were freaked out by the place. But today, Goodrich and Hill are trying to learn more about Dunning. That's because both of them had great-grandparents who were sent there.
6: You can think of this place as the prototypical evil, dark asylum of literature.
9: Joseph Mayer is a psychologist in Springfield. He's researched the history of mental institutions in Illinois, including Dunning.
6: The food was terrible. It was weevil-filled, and people didn't get the kind of medical care they ought to get. For many, many years, it was really a uh, terrible place.
9: It was on Chicago's northwest side at the corner of Irving Park Road and Narragansett Avenue. Everyone called it Dunning, but that was actually just the name of a family that owned nearby land. In its early years, the institution was technically called the Cook County Infirmary. County officials opened it in 1853 as a home for the area's poorest people.
6: In some ways, it's almost similar to what we have today in the sense that we have uh, A lot of people who are homeless and living on the streets, and and a significant proportion of them are people who are mentally ill. In
9: 1870, the county added an insane asylum at Dunning. But it wasn't a place where those with mental illness could find any hope or solace. Patients were abused. At least one was beaten to death. And supervisors? They used the asylum's money to pay for lavish parties. Neighborhood historian Al Opitz says Dunning was run by corrupt county officials.
10: Up until about 1895, everybody was a political hiree. So consequently, you had nobody to report to except the political boss. And a lot of people were, ah, they were mistreated, I guess is a nice way of putting it.
9: A Cook County judge called Dunning, quote, a tomb for the living. In the 1890s, Chicago newspapers reported stories of people sent to live inside this tomb. Some were hearing voices. One man cut off his right hand in a fit of religious mania. One woman refused to eat, saying everything was poisoned. Another man thought he was Jesus Christ. Chicago native Ross Goodrich says his great-grandmother was sent to Dunning after one of her children died.
1: When the baby died, my great-grandmother rocked the baby for a couple of days, wouldn't let it out of her arms.
9: Goodrich says it could have been a case of postpartum
1: depression. If uh, she was having mental difficulties of any kind, I'm not sure that there were any other places available in those days for her to go.
9: Another Chicagoan, Stephen Hill, says it was a bit of a mystery why his great-grandfather ended up in Dunning.
4: I believe that the term that they used was dementia, and they obviously didn't use it not knowing anything about this.
9: Hill says his family never spoke of what happened to his great-grandfather.
4: Life was so tough for immigrants back then. People did not talk about the rough lifestyles they had and how poor they were, but I do know they had a very, very tough life.
9: The state of Illinois took control of Dunning in 1912 and changed the name to Chicago State Hospital. And gradually, treatment improved for those with mental illness. But the hospital was still overcrowded. In 1970, the state moved patients to a nearby facility called the Chicago Reed Mental Health Center. The state shut down Dunning and sold off the property. Crews later tore down what that county judge called a tomb for the living. But there was another chapter in Dunning's story, one that got Michael Dotson wondering about the site in the first place. In 1989, construction workers made a gruesome discovery. Archaeologist David Keene was called to the site.
11: The uh, developer was putting in a sewer and water line in the street right over here. And he hit this corner, and when he, the uh, backhoe operator was digging, pulled up a corpse. The top half of a corpse, which still had clothing on and was in fairly uh, good state of preservation.
9: Keene was hired to figure out why skeletons were turning up on Dunning's land. He learned three cemeteries were hidden underground. They were potter's fields for poor people who couldn't afford burials anywhere else. According to one estimate, 38,000 bodies are still there. Keene says state officials didn't pay much attention to the old graveyards when they constructed new hospital buildings beginning in 1912. And at the time, there was no law to stop them from doing that.
11: As far as we can tell from the archaeological evidence, the state came in and removed any surface evidence of uh, burials in the entire area and began an active building campaign well into the 1960s. During that period, they actually built right on top of graves.
9: Today, a modest memorial park marks the spot where thousands were buried. For some, though, the Dunning Memorial is too modest.
5: We're talking about Civil War vets. We're talking about Chicago fire victims. We're talking about every single orphan
2: that was left at a hospital, every single child that died in the hospitals that had nobody claimed them.
9: Local resident Sylvia Clavins Barsheny runs a Facebook page about Dunning.
2: And the more research I did, the more I felt that the story needs to get out because most of the people that were taken here and then after that, most of the people that were buried here are people that were forgotten in life. They were just left or disposed of or hidden. And if that's how they live their lives, how dare we allow them to live their afterlife like that?
9: Claven Sparshney wants to see landscaping added to the park and a more substantial marker to honor the dead. That's likely to be a tough battle because the state owns the land and the state's been short on cash lately. For now at least, she can thank Mike Dodson for asking us this question about Dunning. It's shed at least a little more light on this dark chapter of the city's past. And it's a reminder that the unfortunate souls buried there have not been completely forgotten.
3: Robert Lorizel found a lot more about Dunning, so he wrote a comprehensive article about it, and we produced a video, too. That's at wbez.org slash city. So you got to stick around. We're going to be talking about secret weapons, amusement parks, and donuts. That's on the Curious City History Special. Stick around. Don't know much about
0: history. Don't know much. Don't know much about the. the
4: I'm Alex Keefe with these W. Just forget it. We're experiencing some technical uh, difficulties. Back to you.
2: You're listening to the Curious City History Special. I'm Jennifer Brandel, senior producer for Curious City.
3: And I'm Sean Ali. I edit Curious City. Our next story involves bona fide secret history. At least it was secret during World War II. The Chicago area was thousands of miles from the war front in Europe and the conflict with Japan and the Pacific Ocean. But there was a lot of war activity going on here, including nuclear tests. The University of Chicago was home to experiments that made the U.S. the first nuclear power. But Mark Eifert asked us whether those experiments left the university with a radiation problem. We had producer Katie Mingle find out.
12: Here's the question, straight from the guy who asked it.
11: Hi, my name is Mark Eifert. I'm from Park Ridge, but I live in Germany. And I have a question. The first controlled nuclear reaction took place under University of Chicago's Stagg Field. And I'm wondering if that site is still radioactive
12: Now, to really unpack this question, it's helpful to know the full backstory, and it's a good story. So let's start back at World War II. American scientists were running experiments to help win the war, and some of that work was done in Chicago. To help tell the story, I found a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who wrote the book about this.
1: I'm uh, Richard Rhodes.
12: As Rhodes tells it, in 1938, scientists in Nazi Germany had discovered that when they split a uranium atom, that atom would release neutrons. Those neutrons could go find more uranium atoms to split, which would release even more neutrons, and you'd have a chain reaction.
1: Once the discovery was made, it was very quickly clear to scientists that this new extraordinarily energetic reaction made it possible to build atomic bombs.
12: Scientists knew that a chain reaction was possible in theory, but they'd never seen one. To get to the bomb, they'd need to experiment.
1: But this would be done in a slightly different way and you could control it. It wouldn't all go boom at once. It would be something you could control.
12: Which gets us back to 1942 at the University of Chicago and an Italian physicist named Enrico Fermi. To demonstrate a chain reaction, Fermi would build a crude reactor. He called it a pile, because that's what it was. A pile of graphite bricks with uranium pellets interspersed. Uranium provided the neutrons and graphite slowed the reactions. Now this is the part where Mark and other people might be wondering about radioactivity. Why run the experiment in the city and not out in the woods? Well, they tried, but workers went on strike at that location, so they moved the pile to the next best location, underground on the university campus.
1: Squash courts, uh, double squash courts.
12: And as Rhodes explains, it wasn't actually that crazy, because they'd already been practicing in the squash courts with smaller piles.
1: The final full-scale machine was not starting from scratch. The odds of there being some totally different response out of these materials when they went the final step were very small. On the other hand, nature is full of surprises.
12: Rhodes says Fermi's team didn't think there'd be a surprise, as in an explosion. A worst-case scenario would have been something along the lines of a meltdown. Still, it couldn't have been an easy decision for Arthur Compton, who ran the research at the university.
1: Finally concluded that he could not tell the president of the University of Chicago what they were doing and ask his permission.
12: In November of 1942, permission or not, Fermi's team started on the final pile. The whole team, even the scientists, helped unload graphite from boxcars.
1: People got just covered with this graphite. Imagine a big block of pencil lead in your hands. They, they would go home looking as if they'd been working in a coal mine all day.
12: They worked in shifts day and night, putting down layers of graphite and plunking in uranium pellets. They were using natural uranium, which isn't very radioactive.
1: Natural uranium is something that you can handle with your bare hands.
12: So the pile is growing and taking shape, looking something like...
1: A doorknob, but it was the size of a two-car garage.
12: Again, Fermi's team was aiming for criticality, that point at which the pile would build a chain reaction that would continue on its own. And for safety, they used special neutron-absorbing control rods. To turn the reaction on, they pulled the rods out. To slow things down, they'd push the rods back in. The scientists spend 17 days building the pile, moving rods around. And Fermi keeps calculating when the pile will go critical.
1: December 2nd, 1942, dawns in Chicago, very, very cold morning.
12: Fermi and his team start to put the final layers of the pile into place, and they're counting the neutrons with counters that work like Geiger counters and click as they register neutrons whizzing by.
1: So by close to noon, they're getting a pretty steady clicking sound out of the reactor. At this point, Fermi, who is a man of of great regularity, Even though this is going to be the first time in the history of the world that human beings have built a nuclear reactor, Fermi says, "Okay, time to stop for lunch. And then they come back. It's now 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And they put the last materials on the top with the control rods pushed all the way in. And then Fermi says, now we're going to remove the control rods and we should have a divergent chain reaction. And as they pull out these control rods, the reaction increases, the counter starts clicking, and it clicks faster and faster, until finally it's a dull roar. Fermi is watching his other gauges and meters, and he says, the reaction is going. We have a chain reaction.
12: And here Fermi and the atomic scientists got their proof that they could coax energy out of matter, and they had a path to the bomb and later to nuclear power. Rhodes tells us that Fermi let the reaction run like this for 15 minutes.
1: It was tense for everyone else, but Fermi was a very confident man.
12: When it was over, the scientists shared a bottle of Chianti in paper cups and drank in silence aware, no doubt, of the far-reaching consequences of their actions that day. As for Mark's question about radioactivity, the reactor would only have been emitting radiation during those 15 minutes that Fermi let the reaction run on.
1: The amount of radioactivity was extremely small. It's faded away long ago. There really was very little risk, and I must say, most of these scientists lived to ripe old ages despite their exposures to low levels of radiation in the course of their work.
12: Just to be sure, though, I went with the University of Chicago's Radiation Safety Officer to a place just above the former site of Fermi's pile. A memorial is there now and a library. We took a reading on a Geiger counter, and sure enough, it read 0.02 millirems per hour. No abnormal radioactivity.
3: Katie Mingle put together a quick field trip for you. Remember that pile one that she was talking about? Well, chunks of it are buried in Chicago's southwest suburbs, and Katie shows you how to get there. That map is yours at wbez.org slash Curious City.
2: Just a couple years after Fermi's radioactive experiment began, the one you just heard about in the mid-1940s, World War II wrapped up and the U.S. entered a new era, the Cold War era. The U.S. was developing advanced weapons. It was building atomic bombs and missiles to protect us from the Soviet Union. And some of those missiles, in particular Nike missiles, were meant to protect Chicago. We got questions about them from Ian Larkin. Ian lives in Chicago's northern suburbs in Winnetka, near the Skokie Lagoons. He says he was shocked to learn that back in the 1950s, nuclear-tipped Nike anti-aircraft missiles had been stationed in his own neighborhood. Ian asked us to bring that Cold War history back to life, and he gave us no shortage of questions about the Nike missiles to start us off.
6: Why they were there, what they were trying to protect, what the purpose of the program was, how long it ran, when did they come out, (sighs) etc.
2: Okay, here goes. I'm going to take on Ian's question in two styles. First, let's do the history buffs take. If you have a fuzzy memory or didn't live through it, the Cold War was not just the backdrop of James Bond movies. It was a real quest for ideological dominance between the Soviet Union and the United States. It was communism versus capitalism. That was the theme of the era and also the title of this old archival film from the National Education Program.
13: It is called a cold war because armed forces, although used as a threat, are rarely unleashed, and blood is not spilled in the massive battles that we think of as war.
2: The U.S. and the Soviet Union never attacked one another directly, but they were prepared to do that. In the early 1950s, the threat of Soviet attack inspired several new U.S. weapons, including Nike missiles. It also inspired lots of American propaganda designed to scare the Soviets and comfort Americans.
4: America forges an ever tighter ring of air defense. With radar scanners probing the skies 24 hours a day, anti-aircraft men scramble to man the batteries of guided missiles that guard
10: all important cities,
4: in this case Chicago. Nike, America's most powerful aircraft destroyer, is ready for action in a matter of minutes. Nike, whose true performance is a carefully guarded secret, tracks down its target at supersonic speeds, hurling its half-ton warhead squarely into enemy bomber.
2: Nike missiles were deployed at more than 300 sites all over the U.S. in case Soviet planes crossed the Arctic Circle and bombed us from the north. The Chicago area had 22 missile installations spanning from Libertyville to the north, to Naperville in the west, to Homewood in the south, and Porter, Indiana in the east. Collectively, they formed a protective, quote, Ring of Supersonic Steel.
6: The Nike rocket itself was supersonic, uh, that is that it went faster than the speed of sound, and made of steel, hence the phrase Rings of Supersonic Steel.
2: That's Mark Burhau. He's a chemist with the USDA and he's a Nike missile historian. He co-wrote a book detailing the history of America's Nike sites and weapons. Burhaus says the missile program had a couple of phases, starting in the 50s.
6: There was the Nike Ajax and the Nike Hercules. So the Nike Ajax was developed first. It was a liquid-fueled missile, and its range was about 30 miles.
2: The Nike Ajax could hit a single plane, and the Hercules could travel farther. And it had a nuclear warhead, so it could take out a whole squadron of planes at once, in theory. Impressive, maybe, but the Nike couldn't keep up with technology. By the late 1950s, the Soviets developed the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM. ICBMs could hit targets thousands of miles away. Here's Mark Burhau.:
6: There's two things about them. One is they have a very wide range, and two, they're like a bullet. They go up in the air and they come down. You know, it's like trying to hit a rock with a rock.
2: The Nike missiles weren't designed to shoot down other missiles, and they were no match for ICBMs anyway. But Chicago didn't lose the Nike program right away. It took years to shut them all down.
7: I think it's important to recognize how many people in the United States depended on military spending for work.
2: That's Northwestern University assistant professor of history Michael Allen.
7: A program like this became uh, not just a cash cow, but a kind of thing that... Um, once started, it was very hard to stop. Experts knew that it wasn't creating security.
2: Our last Nike missile site didn't close until 1974, and there are hardly any Nike remnants left in the area. They've mostly been razed, filled in, turned into parks or built over and forgotten. As for the missiles themselves, though, burhaus' says the Army kept the warheads, but the rest of the systems?
6: They were all boxed up, and we sold these systems to a number of other countries, Taiwan, Japan, Greece. Turkey, Panama.
2: Okay. That's the history buff bird's eye view of the Nike missile story in Chicago. Now comes the human story that our question asker Ian Larkin wanted to.
13: I would
6: love to be transported back in time to to hear, you know, what the mindset of America was at at that point, particularly those people that either worked there or lived in and around those those sites.
0: I remember having Um, nightmares about this as a child.
7: I grew up in the 50s in Gary, Indiana. I live in Orland Park,
0: Illinois. And I grew up in Chicago in the Woodlawn area.
7: I grew up in
2: Highland Park. My feeling as a small child was that Chicago was the center of the earth, and we needed a lot of protection. We needed the Army, we needed the
0: Navy, and we needed Nike missiles. I have a vivid memory of asking my mother where we were keeping our sack piles of supplies and where our shelter was going to be in case of a nuclear attack because we lived in an apartment building.
7: And I remember the old duck and cover drills.
0: Tuck our heads between our
2: legs and kiss our butt goodbye.
0: It was kind of scary. Driving down Lakeshore Drive and seeing all the little hills and knowing that there were live missiles there.
11: The majority of the population did not know that they had
13: the nuclear capabilities in their communities. I worked on the Nike sites in Mundelein and in Northfield.
6: I worked in the Nike program as a soldier. The Ajax was a liquid fuel missile and was not fun to work on. We had some people go to the hospital from a gas that it emitted. You know, it was fairly
7: serious stuff.
12: I decided I was not going to live in fear. I would just
7: realize that the Cold War was something being thought of by politicians and military people.
6: There's bullies around, you know, schoolyard bullies, heads of state bullies. You know, if if you can make them think twice before going after you, that might save your neck.
2: You heard from Deborah Rade, Cheryl Albers, Rich Hayes, Diane Adams, John Henry, and Ed Thalen. And thanks to Michael DeBonis for contributing. We have more on the story online. We've got archival photos and maps where missiles were stationed. And commenters explain where you can find remnants of Nike missile sites today. Head to wbez.org slash city. Stay with us. We've got more of the Curious City history special to come. Stories about old amusement parks, old motels, and fresh donuts.
0: This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius.
3: Curious City's gotten a lot of questions about the 1960s. And here's another one. This time about a legendary amusement park that closed in 1967. Riverview was the kind of place where people were supposed to leave politics, work, or any other kind of trouble at the door. And just relax. And they did. But the way they remember it? Well, it's complicated. Ross Broat was the guy who asked about Riverview. He says he saw a poster of the amusement park at a bar and saw old pictures at a thrift store.
14: You can ask around, but you never really get a full answer. The most interesting part about it is it seemed a little creepy and strange, and I wanted to know more about it.
3: Well, we found a ton of stories from the park. Right now, we focus on two rides that give it some strange aspects. One ride was called the African Dip. We'll hear about that in a minute. But let's start at the park's entrance, where the giant face of Aladdin's Castle dared visitors to enter the fantastical fun house. Chuck Vlodachik starts us off.
14: You know, in Aladdin's Castle, when you started walking up the stairs, about the fourth or fifth stair up was a big air hose, where a guy sat there and operated the air hoses to blow the ladies' skirts up as they negotiated those stairs. To the cheers of the 400 guys that were standing in front of the the fence in front of the Lions' castle. there was always a crowd there
4: in the funhouse you never know what's going to be there until you get to it
10: it was kind of like the things would jump out at you and flash by you you know and you'd go,
4: ah, it
10: was so scary and it kind of was
4: and um... you walked in and there were hallways with mirrors. So
11: as you walk through, you would see your image change. You would be 500 pounds and you would be maybe 4 feet tall. And then when you got to another set of mirrors, your body would be elongated and very skinny.
4: You know, there's no reference point to being surrounded by all these images of yourself.
11: I know one, one distinctive part of it was when these little like hairy things would come down and they would touch on your head so you would feel like it was spiders and i remember my wife telling me that she screamed so much when she was in there they had to turn the lights on and usher everybody out
4: there were all these like tilted floors and i remember my father standing on the other side of that section and trying to get me to walk across and me being really really scared And I think in hindsight, perhaps my father was enjoying watching how I reacted to it. Hmm, gives me a new insight into my father.
13: Were you to approach me on the street and you asked me, gosh, do you remember Riverview? Certainly I do. And it evokes pleasant memories as a young guy. But my mind would always come back to this
10: cage. There were white guys on the one side, and the black men were in cages.
14: As long as I can remember, they always had black fellows sitting on these
13: benches above these dump tanks. And if you hit this target, the guy in the
14: tank would fall in the water. And for a couple of years, they called it the African Dip.
10: And before that, uh, dunk the N-word. Oh, no, I saw that, and as a kid, I, I was kind of ashamed of that. You know, I mean, it was something I was not interested in, and the other thing is, I didn't see anybody else that was African-American throwing the ball.
13: During that time, you know, we're talking about in the 50s, that was when everything was started changing. There are those of us who grew up watching uh, tapes from all these riots in the streets. You know, we had Emmett Till was killed. Things were changing in Chicago. And to some extent, this person represented what they feared, along with those people who just did it for fun. And I clearly remember participating. I mean, I fancied myself as a baseball player and my very close friend. We were both so very accurate at, at knocking the guy into the water.
10: Chicago, uh, in the 1950s, uh, had some serious issues about race. So I know my parents would talk about it, and they hated that that guy was doing that, whoever uh, was performing, but on the other hand, they recognized that jobs were tough to come by, and uh, the guys who did that got paid.
13: If if, if I could have got the job, I'd want to be in there myself, you know, and make people throw and mess with mess with their heads so that they would miss.
14: And, and the guys, they they love their job, you know, because they were heckling people. I know my uncle was a little on the heavy side, and uh, they hey, buddy. Hey, fatty. Man, you're carrying load. You better not stop at the beer garden. Don't get no hamburger. Oh, hey,
10: hey, skinny. But that was to encourage white people to get a- angry at them and, <laughs> and throw the ball. Of course, he he, that is the black man, had to be very careful not to go over this imaginary line where the white guy would wait for him after his shift was over and beat the crap out of him, or worse.
13: Uh, I remember this couple of guys just throwing the ball at the cage, which I couldn't quite, you know, calculate. It's the target, man. You're missing the target. There was much of the N-word flying. It was, I realized, there's something wrong here, something wrong here. But this same friend and I, before he died, he and I uh, talked about it. And I would always say, you know, we were just, you know, Participating, he said, Yeah, but we should have been smarter than that. Well, I mean, look at it like this. I mean, here you're talking to somebody who was a kid there at the time. I was having fun. So, whatever negative things are going on, if you, a black person in America doing the 50s and the 40s or whatever, that was the norm, that was normal stuff. That was America.
3: That was Tazama son. We also heard from Richard Steele, Chuck Vladacik, Gerald Stein, Roxanne Laux, and Pamon Rami. And there was Paul, who did not want us to use his last name. WBEZ's Shannon Heffernan produced this piece. I know we've sent you to our website several times this hour, but right now I'm going to make the Mac Daddy of requests along these lines. You will savor, I say savor, this interactive map we created about Riverview. There's video and photos and first-hand tales from people who remember the amusement park fondly, and some maybe not so fondly. Again, that's at wbez.org slash Curious City.
2: So here's why I love that last story. The guy who asked the question had seen a poster in a bar about some long forgotten place that you literally can't see anymore. That's it. And that's an invitation to delve into some freaky fun and a roller coaster of racial politics, all at an amusement park.
3: But, you know, our next story is about places you can still see. In fact, you can even sleep at them for a night or two at least. The question's about a stretch of Lincoln Avenue on Chicago's northwest side. Here it is directly from Nicole Kirkwood.
5: I've always wondered why there are so many motels along Lincoln Avenue, north of Foster.
3: Well, WBEZ's Logan Jaffe tells how these motels were once a haven for American road trippers, only to gain a reputation for being seedy eyesores.
5: When I meet Nicole, I pop into the passenger seat of her car and we hit the road. We're driving up Lincoln. Right now we're crossing Foster. And in a couple blocks here, we'll go by our first motel. Um, which is right near my grocery store. So that's kind of one of the first ones that to me was a little out of place in this neighborhood because it's very residential. It's a really great Chicago neighborhood. But it's just a little bit of everything. But this residential neighborhood also has lots of old motels. Driving around, you can't miss them. Just realize how many of them there are and, and what a concentrated area that is, you know, not, not at all a, a draw for tourists. Nicole has a point. Chicago's Lincoln Square neighborhood is about 3 miles east of the Edens Expressway and almost 10 miles north of any downtown attractions. It's a neighborhood, not a tourism hotspot with billboards on the interstate. So why would anyone build a motel here? To clear some things up, I call Patrick Steffis, editor of the history blog Forgotten Chicago. He says Lincoln Avenue, at least the parts with lots of motels, is actually one tiny stretch of U.S. Route 41, a 2,000-mile north-south highway that predates the interstate system. And back in the 50s, it was a popular way to travel long distances. He says these days, if you drive Nicole's neighborhood, it's easy to forget that history.
9: If you live on the north side or the northwest side and you know Lincoln Avenue, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, this is an interstate highway that goes from you know near Canada to near Cuba. You think of it as your
10: highway.
5: That's especially the case because now most road trippers take the interstate. Highway 41 could bog you down in Chicago neighborhoods. Interstates let travelers avoid that inconvenience, and the first in our area was the Edens Expressway. It opened in 1951.
9: It was designed to get people into Chicago and then out of Chicago. It wasn't meant for people driving from, say, you know Highland Park to Skokie. It was meant for them to drive to Ohio.
5: You literally couldn't exit the Edens into a Chicago neighborhood. So the expressway was like a vacuum that sucked car traffic right out of Lincoln Square. But Lincoln Avenue hotels remained on the edge of town, and no one knew what to do with motels with names like the Tip Top and the Summit. Sixty years later, you can still see the interstate's effect on Nicole's neighborhood. Patrick Steffes and I are standing on the corner of Lincoln Avenue and Peterson Avenue. It's the site of the old Stars Motel, Now an empty lot. It's
9: actually kind of reverting back to the natural prairie. The sign is still there. It looks a little rough, but it would have been a very dramatic uh, view if you're driving in to Chicago to see this uh, colorful neon sign. I do remember when it lit up. It was quite, quite fascinating. It was well kept.
5: But there's another sign standing there, too, or the remains of one. It was a for sale sign. After the motel was demolished in 2006, there were plans to build a condo here, but that never happened. Mid century, 14 motels lined Lincoln Avenue. Now there are only nine, and each one's a target for local developers.
3: Logan is a pretty sneaky producer, and somehow she managed to get some cool stuff on the story's webpage. Among other things, there's a map that shows how U.S. Route 41 makes its way from Florida to Chicago to Michigan. That's at WBEZ.org slash Curious
11: City. All of a sudden, in the wink of an eye, a Cadillac sedan passed us by and said, boys, it's a marvel for me. By then, the taillight was all you could see.
2: The 1960s were a decade of tremendous change across the world, the country, and of course, Chicago, too. There were demonstrations, protests, riots, calls for revolution. And all the while, a quiet, lesser-known revolution began in Chicago. It's when the city changed how it gets its sugar fix, in particular, why one donut chain dominates. Reporter Dan Weissman braved scalding hot coffee, sticky fingers, and a powdered sugar mustache to answer this Curious City question.
14: Here's the question Curious City got. Does Chicago have any more privately-owned donut shops? And which is the best? I want to answer it in honor of my old roommate, Howard Greenwich. He left Chicago years ago, but I still remember his laments about the city's donut situation.
7: I came to Chicago in 1992, and the donut was my favorite guilty pleasure. And I just remember I I traveled all over Chicago for my job, and everywhere I was, was Dunkin' Donuts or, or pretty much nothing.
14: Which meant, as far as Howard was concerned, Pretty much no donuts worth actually eating.
7: You know, if you're going to do that much damage to your body, it should be good.
14: Howard was disappointed and kind of mystified.
7: You know, I grew up in a small town.
14: Like 5,000 people, that small.
7: And our local donut place was great.
14: Howard had expected that a big city like Chicago would offer amazing donut possibilities. So this question is for Howard because this question contains another question, a deeper mystery. What happened to all of them? The obvious answer is Dunkin' Donuts killed them all. But the real answer turns out to be more complicated and more interesting. I talk with the guy who brought Dunkin' Donuts to Chicago. His name is Bob Rosenberg. In 1963, at age 25, he took the company over from his dad, Bill Rosenberg, right after he graduated from Harvard Business School. He's like the George W. Bush of donuts, and. Bob had spent his last year at Harvard devising a strategy for what he would do with his dad's business. At the time, the company had like 80 donut shops all over the country and a hamburger chain in the Boston area and a bunch of commissary trucks. So Bob got rid of everything except Dunkin' Donuts, and he said, look, we're only going to concentrate on five cities, and we're going to use this great term, fortress those markets. In other words... We're going to establish a big presence in these places to build up brand awareness and to get some efficiencies on distribution and support. And all the stores will be kicking into a kitty so we can advertise. So we'll build up a fortress in a battle against our competitors. But they were never competing with other donut shops to sell people donuts. They were competing with 7 and White Hen to sell people coffee, convenience stores. Here's Bob Rosenberg.
4: That's where people stop for, for coffee and in the morning. So that's who our competitors were. And quite truthfully, I had no idea how many independent donut shops there might have been.
14: He says the donut business is a much tougher racket than the coffee business.
4: Donuts are consumed maybe as a, on a special occasion by a consumer, maybe once every two or three weeks they go to a donut shop. Whereas coffee, your heavy users are, are buying it sometimes two and three times a day. It,
14: it's a whole
4: different business.
14: These days, Dunkin's coffee centricity is all out front. In the 1990s, the company dumped the mascot it had been using in TV commercials for 15 years, this droopy, early-rising guy called Fred the Baker.
0: Time to make the
14: donuts. And they adopted this slogan that reflects their role as a caffeine peddler. America runs on Dunkin'. But even when Bob Rosenberg brought Dunkin' Donuts to Chicago in the mid-1960s, years before Fred the Baker went on TV, coffee already represented 60% of Dunkin' Donuts sales in its home markets, which was no accident.
4: Very fastidious about how we made our coffee, where it was grown, how it was roasted, how much coffee per pot. The fact that we used real cream when no one else could get it in the United States. Most dairies didn't make 18% light cream. I mean, we were were slavish in the attention that we paid to
14: our beverages. Did I mention that they tossed out the coffee every 18 minutes instead of letting it sit on the burner? So... Dunkin' Donuts was Starbucks, building a brand around meticulously crafted coffee before Starbucks was Starbucks. And Dunkin' Donuts didn't take out the other donut shops in head-to-head competition. Dunkin' was actually in a different and more profitable business, coffee. But still, what happened to all those donut shops, and how many did there used to be? To find out, I went to the Chicago Public Library's special collections room to look in the Yellow Pages from 1963. Dough Mixers, Donut Making Equipment, Donut Shops. Here we go. Not really that many in 1963, just one little column. You want to know how many there were? One, two, three, four, five. Twenty. In a city the size of Chicago, there were 20 donut shops. That's it. There were also tons and tons of bakeries, but still. So as a point of comparison, I looked at the 2013 Yellow Pages for Los Angeles. Electric, drywall, donuts. (gasps) Oh, no way. (laughs) it lists like 150 donut shops 150 that's a lot of donuts none of them are Dunkin Donuts only one is a Krispy Kreme so LA has more than 7 times as many locally owned donut shops today as Chicago had in 1963 why? I'll tell you this in 1963 when Bob Rosenberg took over Dunkin Donuts he made a cross country trip to scope out potential markets and California looked terrifying
4: there were thousands And thousands of existing competitors. There were coffee shops everywhere. And there was
14: this regional donut and coffee chain called Winchell's. They were big then. So when he picked five cities to fortress, L.A. and San Francisco were off the list. In 2013, 50 years later, Dunkin' Donuts is making news in L.A. with an attempt to crack that market now.
2: Good luck with that, Los Angeles. Thanks to reporter Dan Weissman for that wild ride. And if you're one of the five people in the world looking to boost your donut intake, well, you are in luck. We've put together three different donut crawls around Chicago and the suburbs. They're like a pub crawl, but for donuts. That's at WBEZ.org slash Curious City.
3: Now that Curious Cities dealt with the history of donuts, gender, missiles, and a strip of seedy motels in Chicago, maybe you think we're done with history or your questions about it.
2: Not at all. But here's the thing. Curious City is about way more than just history. We're open for business when it comes to your questions about our region's present and future, too.
3: Plus, we've got plenty of answers right now. You can hear how the Chicago accent is changing or when the city is going to get its next skyscraper or what it's like to live on minimum wage. That's at WBEZ.org slash Curious City. Hope to see you there.
2: I'm senior producer Jennifer Brandel.
3: I'm editor Sean Ali. Curious City is brought to you by people who ask good questions, like Adam Peterson. Michael Dotson. Mark Eifert. Ian Larkin. Ross Brote. Nicole Kirkwood. And this mystery person, this mystery someone we call the donut person, who did not return our emails even though we promised a veritable Shangri-La of donuts.
2: Unbelievable. It really is. Curious City is produced by WBEZ and AIR with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.